everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. One of the things I try to open the students' eyes to is what you learn in school has very little application to the kinds of things that you're going to confront in life. You learn the skills and techniques in school, but what you don't learn about is the real world issues that you have to deal with. To me, the cost of not doing what you want to do, the cost of not pursuing what you want to pursue, the cost of playing it safe, the cost of missed opportunities for fulfillment and excitement and creative expression, and working with great people, doing what you want to do, the chance that's risky to me is not doing those things. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I, you know, this is one of those interviews where I looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to go down that road. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to go down that road. Like I have a thousand roads that I can go down with you. So we may just be popping around lots of different places. So um, I'm excited that you agreed to do this interview. And I think a good place for us to start would be Akron, Ohio in the eighth grade. Do you remember that time? (laughs) I certainly remember uh, Akron, Ohio. That's where I'm from. That's where I grew up and uh, still have dear friends from when I was growing up back in Akron. and. Eighth grade. I'm trying to remember which particular episode that was in eighth grade. Well, uh, it was the episode that included the book Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. Do you remember that? Oh, sure do. I sure do. One of my teachers was talking about when you go shopping and how that you are uh, unconsciously manipulated when you shop. I thought, well, that's really interesting. What does that mean? And she was just giving an anecdote, but that anecdote really inspired me to look further into it. So what is she really talking about? And I saw a review of the book, The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. And the review was really interesting. And so I got the book out of the library. What it talked about was, for instance, how colorful boxes of cereal are put on lower shelves. So when a mother is shopping with her kid, the kid's going to go for that Fruit Loops or box of kicks or whatever it is. And I never thought of that before, a box of kicks. That's kind of an interesting concept. 
box of kicks. Yeah, get in a box of kicks. Mm -hmm. What are you going to kick out of? I don't know. I get a whole box of them. But, but, you know, the multicolored, bright colored boxes the kids would grab. And basically to appease them so they could go on shopping, the mother would put it in the cart. And then, of course, the prime space for adults was eye level. And then it went into other things in terms of how we buy. And this is before the field of behavioral economics had codified at all. But he was very early into researching consumer behavior. And I just found it really interesting. And that is an interest that has continued and has evolved into my fascination with cognitive neuroscience, just how we make decisions because we don't make decisions in a logical way in most cases. And we don't really understand even how we make the decisions we make. Then it was, I believe, 2005, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky won the Nobel Prize for creating the field, essentially, of behavioral economics, which is based on how we make decisions. And I had read their book back when it came out called Heuristics and Biases, And it all started back in eighth grade where interest was sparked, you know, from reading that book review and just continuing because I just found I find human behavior absolutely fascinating. Why do we do what we do? What are our reasons for doing it? Why do we buy what we buy? How do you create desire? And all of those things I just think are really interesting. But in eighth grade, that's unusual for an eighth grader, don't you think? Where did that come from? I'm thinking that, first of all, it came from the fact that it was just, what an interesting topic. Why do we do what we do? I mean, that's really interesting. And, you know, by the way, my degree in college, I had a double major at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in philosophy and psychology. I hadn't thought about it before. You just asked that question, Rob, but it all is kind of a progression in terms of things that interest me. You know, we were talking before we went live here. You know, you're talking about art and food and all the things that you're finding amazing now that you're living in Florence. Mm. And, you know, why do you find that amazing? Why is that compelling? What is it about art? What is it about living life in a particular way that ignites some people and other people couldn't think of anything more boring or they never thought about it at all? I find all of those things interesting. I think if you allow your mind to wander and you wonder about things that raises questions that can create those thousand paths you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. We're going to dig into that, but I want to talk a little bit more about the earlier years for you. You had one of the best sales training grounds in the world. You were a fuller brush door-to-door salesman. I mean, there is nobody... (laughs) Nobody in the world that understands sales better than the Fuller Brush salesman. And, and I, you know, I'm old enough to know what that is, 55, but I'm not sure a lot of people listening actually know what that is. Can you describe what a Fuller Brush salesman was? So Fuller Brush was a company based in New York who, in at least their first 75 years of business or something, never had a year that was a down business. Their sales were always up. And it was a door-to-door selling of household goods. So it could be oven cleaner or shampoo or, you know, all these kinds of household items, dish brushes and that kind of thing. They used door-to-door salespeople. They didn't have retail stores uh, and they didn't even have a catalog. Uh, And of course, there was no online. So they built this 
prodigious business that doesn't exist anymore that I know of. I don't, and there was even a movie made about it, The Fuller Brush Man, starring Red Skelton, if any of your audience would ever have ever heard of him. So it was a real popular thing in our in our culture. And yeah. door-to-door sales were a real thing in our culture. So selling those household goods, you know, from dishwashing soap, as I said, to shampoo, that's uh, what Fuller Brush was. So I walked around with my sample case and you always had a free gift to give the person to win them over. What techniques or approaches work well for you to get people to buy from you? In other words, is there anything that you learned back then and we're going to get into your career as we move along, but you know, certainly sales, you have, you're, we're always selling something. What did you learn back then as a fuller brush salesman that you were able to use later on in different things that you've done? So there were, there were two paths, Rob, which is kind of interesting. When I started selling fuller brush, I was 16. I set national sales records and they had offered me a position they would pay me through high school if I then went to work for them. That was not a career that I had even a glimmer of interest in doing. But they said, well, I want, we want you to teach some sales classes. And I said, I can't teach sales classes. And they said, why not? And I said, because I'm a cute 16-year-old kid. And that's why women feel safe opening the door. And I can't you know, teach guys in their 40s and 50s, how to come across like a cute 16-year-old kid. So I didn't pose any threat, Mm. you know, and they opened the door and I always dressed up. I always wore like a sport jacket and tie. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they thought I was working my way through school. And, you know, I realized the advantage I had just being young in that job because, you know, you're vulnerable. You open your front door, you're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So I think that a big part of, I mean, I knew how to talk and I knew how to present myself, but the reason that I was so successful was they didn't feel threatened. I was a cute kid. They found it kind of interesting that I was even doing, it. I was the youngest fuller brush man in the country. And so they found it really interesting that I was even doing that. I didn't, I don't, I, I didn't for a moment presuppose that I had some outstanding magical technique that uh, I could impart to these guys, you know, I could suggest to them, you know, don't drink scotch before 10 a.m., you know, uh, get out there and knock on some doors first. You know, the other thing was, and and the lesson that really I took away from that was you have to have a winning proposition and you have to get to it quick in order to engage people. And Fuller had their own psychology, which is also you offer them a free gift. You start off saying, you know, we've got this soap dish. You know, you can choose from a soap dish or three samples of our shampoo and conditioner and whatever. So you offered them something and that would engage them. I found that first thing, just saying good morning or hi, I'm Jeff Madoff and I've uh, been assigned to your neighborhood for Fuller Brush and I've got a free gift for you. And I'd love to talk to you about the kinds of things that you use and need because we've got some great products. And I had maybe maybe 20 seconds before they'd close the door in my face if I didn't. Actually, someone closed it faster than that. But I learned that I had to engage people immediately. And that was an incredibly good lesson to learn, which was reinforced when I worked in retail stores later, is you know doing that. And 
I think that that was something that I really took with me. How do you engage people quickly? How do you make an offer to them that they're going to find compelling or at least they're curious enough about to want to stick around? Let's move forward a little bit to college. You began working in a uh, in a boutique uh, clothing store in Madison, Wisconsin. Can you remember what it felt like working in the shop or working in that shop and maybe describe what it was about fashion that caught your attention at that point in your life? Well, there's there's a couple of things. And my parents, my mom and dad had uh, retail stores that they owned in Akron selling women's and children's clothing. I grew up not only in an entrepreneurial environment, but in an environment where fashion is what they sold. You know, it was around me. It wasn't something that I discovered. I grew up in it. And, and to this day, my sister has her own, my sister Janice has a great store in Charleston, South Carolina, that is very expensive, high fashion, and really cool. And she, you know, she was very active in my parents' business. I worked in the store when I was a, a little kid, but I didn't really like it. But she did, and she really sparked to it. But it did give me, again, skills and experience that I could parlay into jobs, you know, when I was in school and even in high school and so on, because I, I had a sense of business and, and I had a sense of approaching people cold and engaging them. Those were very useful things. And so in Madison, the thing that was unusual about the store is the guy that opened the store was two or three years older than me. You know, so it was at that time, which was in the uh, early 70s, late 60s, mm. early 70s, that it was unusual for young people to own a business. Truth be told, we'd smoke weed in the back room and then the owner would come out and say, how do you work the cash register? You know, all these fucking keys. How do you work the cash register? You know, but I would never get high at work uh, because I was at work and I just wouldn't. I had to have my wits about me, so I wasn't going to yeah. do that. But it was that kind of a young business. I mean, we we sold. Uh, we were in the base of a rooming house, uh, and across the hall from us was a record store. So I built up a phenomenal record and music collection and got exposed to more and more and more music. Plus, Madison was a destination for all the major bands. You know, I saw Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Cream and all these bands. And it was an amazing time. And those musicians would often come into the store. I did the buying for the store and would find unique stuff and they would come in and buy. So it's not that I had a particular interest in fashion, but it was something that I was employable in and that I could, you know, talk my way into a job. And, and it was fun because also in the store it was all students who were shopping there. So, you know, I'd meet people, people I became friends with, people I went out with, you know, and it was just fun. So it was much more social than a normal retail job would have been because of the young ownership, because of where we were and because who our customers were. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, in the 70s, you ran a company called 
Billy Whiskers, right? And that was, <laughs> yeah. you ran you ran Billy Whiskers from Madison, but the financial guy who was backing you, he gives you the cash and he's like, look, I'll give you the money, but this is to keep the Wisconsinites going. This is not for New Yorkers. And you say, I want to, I want to move to New York. You had to make a decision to like end that relationship to go to New York because this guy is not going to back you. Can you sort of tell me a little bit more about that story and maybe add some color there? The man's name was John Bossart. John was a lawyer and he was a fifth generation Wisconsinite. And I think he owned five banks. His daughter was dating a friend of mine. She and I met. And she said, you know, I think my dad would be really interested in your business because I had gotten a lot of national publicity really quickly when I started the fashion company, which, you know, started as a, as a total lark. And so I met her dad, really nice man. He found me to be an interesting novelty and I was doing business. And so, you know, there was a proof of concept and he saw that how rapidly the business was growing. So when he got involved in financing me, what he said was, uh, I, want, I want to be clear from the beginning, I'm doing this because you're providing employment for Wisconsinites. And, you know, they all bank in his bank. And so I had my height in my factory in Footville, Wisconsin. I had 110 people there. And then I had another factory also in Wisconsin. And that was additional customers for him. And so it was about three years later that I wanted to move to New York, not initially. Initially, you know, although I loved coming to New York, the thought of living there was too intimidating. You know, I, I had never been in that kind of a hustling, bustling city uh, on a regular basis before. I had done a job that took me to New York a few times a year, but never there as much. Well, I discovered that I'm a stimulus junkie. I love the city. I love the activity. I love the constant pulse that is going on and the kaleidoscopic nature of just walking around and looking around and all of that. Nobody in Wisconsin knew the fashion business. I realized in order to, to do what I wanted to do, I had to move to New York. And, and more so, I wanted to be in that kind of energy flow. Because in New York, I wouldn't be a novelty. You know, there were lots of people in pursuit of things. In Wisconsin, being as young as I was and building a business was unusual. And I was interested not being the big fish in a little pond. I wanted to be in a place where there was lots of people doing things. And I would meet people who were ambitious and involved in the arts and involved in just that excitement that is New York City. How long have you been in New York now? I moved here in 74. Wow, long time. So, yeah. Way longer than I've lived anywhere else. Does it get old for you or does it still feel exciting? It still feels exciting. I absolutely, lo I absolutely love it. And, you can't leave, you know, right? I, I can, but I don't know where I'd go. <laughs> you know, I'm not a prisoner. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, and I have traveled a great deal for work and because I've shot all over the world. Uh, but. You know, I, I love living in New York. New York has certainly had its challenges. We're going through another one. But there is a vitality to the city. I remember I was with uh, my wife and I were with a couple of friends. We were waiting to be seated in this restaurant. 
this is about three years ago. And I'm listening. And I said, you know, waiting to be seated. I just heard seven different languages of people just waiting to be seated. Oh. That's cool. You know, it's really just, cool. Yeah. And just that international feel that the city has. I remember when I took my parents to Lincoln Center to see mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein conduct the New York Philharmonic and doing West Side Story Suite. And this is probably 35 years ago. And we walked there and walked to a restaurant, then walked back to my home. It's just, I just love it. I just love it. And I, I, I love what it, not all of it, of course, but I love the energy and the creativity and the adaptability that this city has. And even when COVID hit here really hard back in 20, there's all these articles about the death of New York, the death of cities. No, you know, flying saucers land in the hinterlands out in some field somewhere. They don't land in New York because they couldn't find a place to park in New York. They would get the fuck out of the way, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I, I, I like being where that kind of activity and action uh, and achievement is. I get it. You want to be in the heat of it. All right. I want to talk about the movie business. You went from fashion to movies. What was the triggering event for you that got you into the movie business? There is a gentleman that I bought fabric from in New York. And, you know, Mr. Erlanger, a really nice man. I was at a buying appointment with him. And kind of out of the blue, he said, do you know anything about the movie business? I said, not really, no. I mean, I go to movies and I've read some books about the movies because I'm interested. But beyond that, no. And he said, well, my son is your age. And he's gotten involved with some people. You've got a level head and you're smart business kid. So would you mind meeting him? I said, no, I'd be happy to. I met his son and his son had bought the rights to Junkie which was a book written by William Burroughs, who for your listeners who don't know who that is, is he was one of the seminal figures of the beat generation in the 50s and early 60s in New York. Uh, His most popular book was called Naked Lunch, uh, which a movie was made out of that. He was the also the heir to the Burroughs business machine fortune, but uh, he was quite a black sheep in that family, a very conservative family and And William Burroughs was not conservative by any stretch. And uh, interesting guy, Dennis Hopper, who had just come off of doing Apocalypse Now with Francis Ford Coppola, was going to be uh, adapting the book along with Terry Southern, who wrote The Magic Christian. And he and Dennis would fight about who actually wrote Easy Rider. Dennis Hopper and I really hit it off. He was going through quite an interesting period and destructive but interesting period of his life. He and I just really got along well because I knew some of his earlier work. And actually what we bonded over was, uh, I said to him, you know what I remember you from, Dennis? He goes, yeah, yeah, man, I know. Easy rider, right? And I said, actually, no. I remember from when I was a little kid and there were the Warner Brothers Westerns on television. And you always played the psychotic 
bad guy. They go, yeah, bam, 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 I kill everybody. And I said, yeah, that's right. And I said, and what I remembered most of all was that you wore authentic cowboy clothes. Everybody else wore Hollywood cowboy clothes. Yours looked authentic. The hats were oversized. You know, everything looked kind of real. You're blowing my mind, man. It was real. That stuff was real, man. And I go to Texas, I go to Arizona, man. I buy real stuff out of my pocket, man. Nobody's ever said that to me before. And so we bonded over the fact that I recognized he was wearing authentic Western clothing and got along well. And he wanted to me to also have a part in the movie and be in the movie. Now, you may have never heard of the film because it never happened. And it never happened because uh, Dennis and William and Terry could never get it together. After we were working on this for a little while, I said to Tommy, they're going to squeeze you out of this. You put together this team. They don't need you anymore. And my senses are going to squeeze you out. It's my project. And I said, they're never going to get it done. And sure enough, within two weeks, they offered him three times what he paid for, it, which wasn't a lot of money. But, you know, he tripled his money in less than three months. And I said, get out. Take the money. You can always resell the option because this is not going to happen. And in fact, my movie career was cut very short, Rob, because it never happened. <laughs> and uh, But in that time, I, I started to learn about the film business and then segued into doing film and video. Did you enjoy the process, the creative process of the movie business? There were parts of it that were interesting, but that it would be uh, a misrepresentation if I said that I learned the business from them. I certainly learned what not to do, you know, like don't get so high you can't work. (laughs) 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 And so they would get up, truly, they would get up at like four in the afternoon, eat, and then I saw Dennis would sign over the checks from Zoetrope to uh, Burroughs' assistant who would go out and buy booze and Coke. And then they'd come back to the room. And then it, and Burroughs was quite a bit older than everybody. And so Terry and Dennis would be yelling at each other about some nonsense. And Burroughs, who was sitting there in the chair, would just click off his hearing aid. <laughs> he didn't want to listen to it. So, uh, you know, and then they'd go to bed at four in the morning, five in the morning, and the cycle would repeat. So the bloom was off the rose fairly early into the process. So it's not like I worked with some master filmmaker and learned a great deal. But what I did learn is the power of the story in terms of translating the written word into a film. Uh, I got glimpses of that, only glimpses, and not really anything about the business of the business. But filmmaking, creating images and so on, not that I learned from them. I mean, I always I did photography and I learned storytelling through osmosis from my grandfather. But I saw how you could apply that to film, even in a very distorted lens that I was viewing it through at that time. You know, it's all my, my career has never been linear. I never had career plans. Ideas are what get me. And that's what attracts me. And so I would look at something like that, and then I'd want to learn all about it. 
And, you know, I was fortunate enough uh, that I had the business sense that I could figure out ways to make a living with my ideas, hence the name of the class that I teach at Parsons in my book. And so I've always been able to figure out some way to do that. And so I was able to merge the filmmaking with the fashion because at that time, nobody was shooting fashion shows. It was all still pictures. And I knew there was an opportunity there. Are you motivated by choosing projects based on money or have you been, or is it more for you based on the idea of something? When I started my second clothing company, I walked away from money in my first one. When I started the second clothing company and then sold that, and I was you know, offered a very, very good position to take over American acquisitions for this German company. Hmm. So I was offered a lot of money plus expenses and all this stuff. And I was a kid. I was like 26. My parents said, wow, just do it for two or three years. And I said, you know, I don't want to be around people like that. It's just not what I want to do. And, you know, my parents, mom and dad, were both very independent. We're, my sister and I were brought up that way. Money was never the driving force. What the driving force was is what is going to engage me? What are going to, what's going to allow me to use the talents that I have? What's going to, let's say when I interview editors and when I was hiring editors for my film company, I would say to them, I want you to do work that you want to show your friends that you think is cool. You know, I know how to look at balance sheets. I know how to do business. I can look at businesses and see where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are. Part of my business uh, of recent is is that I position companies for sale, sizable companies, working with with, uh, investment banks and private equity companies. I know how to talk to those people. But that's the part that interests me the least. But it's a survival skill. And knowing business is a survival skill. I've been fortunate enough that I have made money doing what I do. And that affords me the opportunity to do other things. Uh, So instead of just trying to grow my primary business and make it really, really big, when I had the opportunity to teach, I thought that would be really interesting. And now in January, I start my 15th year of teaching that course. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Let's talk about that. You're in. Sure. Uh, you're teaching at the uh, the new school, which is um, it's one of the most prestigious schools uh, in New York City by many many standards. You are a professor now. I mean, among many many things that you've done, now you can add professor, and you've written uh, a book called Creativity: Making a Living with Your Ideas, and you now have a course which is by the same name. Why did you write the book, and why are you teaching the course? Well, it's first, why am I teaching the course? And what happened was I was shooting the Ralph Lauren fashion show. And uh, it was funny, the show ended and this guy came up to me and he said, uh, I'm Dean Stadel from uh, Parsons School of Design. I said, oh, you're a dean? 
No, 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 no. My name is Dean. <laughs> like Dean Martin. Those are always, it's, it's like when you, uh, I, when I interview somebody whose name's major, I, I keep thinking he's in the army. I, I get that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so he asked me if I would come in and cause I was, you know, one of the first people doing that. And so he, uh, asked me if I would come in and speak to his class and talk about my work and what I do. And I did, and it was well received. And then I did that for like the next three years every semester I would come in and speak to his class. Hmm. He said, you know, there's opening for an adjunct professor professorship. You ought to go for it. You really enjoy doing this. And I said, I do, but you know, I might get a phone call and be out of the country for two weeks. I don't yeah. know that I can do that. And he said, well, try it for a third of a semester. I did. And what I didn't know was in fact, they were also auditioning, if you will, two other people. I got offered the job. I raised the same question. They said that they would work with me. And now it's 15 years later. I love teaching because teaching gives me the opportunity to always be learning. So I'm always meeting new people who were really interesting and doing cool things. It gives me a great platform, just like your podcast does, to meet people that you think are interesting. And so aside from whatever business part of the podcast there is, you know, you get to meet new people who you might meet other good people from, because I do believe you meet good people through other good people. I love that I have a platform that I can approach anybody and ask them to come speak. And being associated with a great school like Parsons, it makes it easier for people to say yes. And now that I've had so many you know, marquee names in my class, that makes it easier too. I love doing it because I believe in spreading good ideas, I believed in I believe in informed debate, critical thinking, and exposing new ideas. Every semester, I've got a whole new group of people from all over the world, uh, and I learn from the students too, and what their concerns are, and all of that. So it's all new stimulus all the time. And then a number of people said to me you know, you ought to reach a bigger audience than just the school. Have you ever thought of writing a book? I said, yeah, I thought about it, but I frankly didn't really know how to do, a, do it. And in terms of just so how to get a book published. Yeah. And I didn't want to self-publish. I wanted to have a legitimate large publisher behind me to give it the credibility. You know, maybe the next book or the next book might be self-published if I have enough of a name out there. I wanted all the credibility I could get in putting a book out there like that. Ended up through serendipity and coincidence and uh, that I got a book deal. I met some people and was able to parlay that into a book deal. I'm proud of the book. I actually wrote it. People seem to get something out of it. And so I enjoy doing that. And then that led me, by the way, to doing podcasts. So that took me into a whole other world that has been fun because, I mean, like talking to you, Rob, it's like, you know, we're... We're getting to know each other. You did research. You ask good questions. My my circle is just widened that much more in in meeting you, and that's been fun. And I get to talk about what I do. I mean, it's not a 
horrible subject for me to talk about. <laughs> you know, that's fine. No, you know, you know what's so interesting to me? I, I um I you mentioned earlier that you have not had a linear path and that you're an idea guy. And I love that because I think there's a lot of people who are listening who sort of think that they have to, you know, follow through this path. You know, you you go to college, you get a degree, after you get you become a doctor, you become a lawyer, a CPA, whatever, and you just go down this path. But that's not how you've lived your life. You've lived your life based on what I'm seeing is you're willing to pivot and you're willing to go into a completely different profession and you have no issue with that at all. I mean, you embrace that change. Where do you think that comes from? I think that probably the fundamental place it comes from is a sense of curiosity, Mm. you know? And so I learn best by immersion. You know, I taught myself how to shoot, how to light, how to edit. I taught myself how to design, how to construct a garment. I'm now involved in a play and, you know, taught myself. um, And I'm, of course, still learning on that. And all of these things that I've done are things that I can only get better at the more I do it. So there's a constant learning that's going on. Uh, And I've been fortunate, you know, to work with amazing people because those all those things that I do are highly collaborative. That is also a joy when you're working with talented people and you share the same goal. And one of my things is like with the play, like when I'm in production, is I will I protect the people that work with me because I don't want anybody to rob the joy of the process. A lot of people have issues that they ought to be working out in therapy, not on the set, not on the stage. My director for the play, Sheldon Epps, who is a fantastic person and a fantastic and very credentialed director. When I met him and I just knew I really liked him and liked his vision and all of that. And I said to him, so Sheldon, I want to warn you, I have the no asshole. And he kind of laughed and they said, I think I know what you mean, but why don't you tell me? I said, if I'm working for you, you can never be abusive. I'll never put up with that. You can be an asshole if you're paying me enough, you know, but if I'm paying you, you can't be. Oh, that's great. And and he laughed and he said, I have the same rule. It's never been, God, I don't know anything about that because most people don't know what they're doing until they're actually doing it. You know, and uh, one of the things I try to open the students' eyes to is what you learn in school has very little application to the kinds of things that you're going to confront in life. You learn the skills and techniques in school, but what you don't learn about is the real world issues that you have to deal with. And I quote one of uh, my favorite lines in the movies even though the movie was not that good, but the fight scenes were great. It was, did you ever see uh, Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon? Of course. So there's that scene at the beginning where, you know, the villain puts the board right next to Bruce's face Mm -hmm. and he punches the board and Bruce doesn't even blink. And then he looks at the guy and says, boards don't hit back. And life hits back all the time. All the time. That's right. And you got to be aware of that and realize that's just part of the trip. 
You mentioned the play. Um, you're currently writing a play called uh, Personality, the Lloyd Price musical. Yes. Um, tell me about it. Why, why, why that play? Why that subject matter? So it's, it's another one of those serendipity stories, you know, because uh, it's interesting. You never know when you meet certain people how that may impact on your life. That's another thing I just kind of find fascinating. So I had done a film for Radio City Music Hall for their 75th anniversary. So I had a film that was running there, ended up running there for about seven or eight years. It was supposed to be just one year. Wish I would have been paid royalties, but I wasn't. But, mm. uh, but it was cool that I had something in the, their Christmas spectacular. Of course. The executive producer at that time for Radio City was a man named John Bonanni, who to this day were very dear friends. His book just came out, as a matter mm. of fact. And... Uh, and he wrote about me in his book, which was really an honor and really cool. Wow. And he left Radio City, but he liked the way I worked. He liked the way I viewed things. And he called me up and said, do you know who Lloyd Price is? And I said, yeah, Mr. Personality. Because after his big hit, Personality, that became his nickname. And I said, yeah, I mean, I loved the song. I love Stagger Lee. That was one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. I said, well, I'd like you to meet him. I think there may be something there. So we met and we met because he and John were in the waiting room because they share the same eye doctor. Because that's really how stuff happens. You know? Always, always. We're always. just, you know, the, the son of somebody I bought fabric from is in the movie business working with Terry Southern and William Burroughs yep. and Dennis Hopper. You know, it's yep. just uh, yep. stuff happens. Yep. So I met Lloyd and... I did a produced and directed a short documentary about him. But in doing that, I researched him because I knew his music. I didn't know anything about him. And his story was amazing. Lloyd is black. He was born in Kenner, Louisiana, where the airport is from New Orleans. When he recorded his first song, Laudy Miss Claudie, when he was uh, recorded it when he was 17, 18, when it was released. At that time, the music business was an adult business. Kids didn't buy records. There were a bunch of small labels around that did jazz and blues. Rock and roll was not a thing yet. Mm. And if they sold 3,500 records, that was pretty good. Well, Lottie Miss Claudie sold over a million. It was oh. unheard of. And at that time, if you wanted to buy a record by a black artist, you had to go to a black-owned record store. It was called Race Music. And so Lloyd broke down the wall that was called race records because nobody is prejudiced about green. Everybody wants that. Aside from that, he was the first musician of any color to start his own label. He was an entrepreneur. His life happened at the crossroads of the youth movement, the civil rights movement, and the birth of rock and roll. All things that I think are so important and so fascinating and uh, in doing his documentary, Lloyd and I became friendly. And I said to him, I know I can capture your voice. I want to tell your story. And I wrote the first few scenes. He really liked what I wrote. And that started our association. And we became very, very close friends. Unfortunately, Lloyd died in May of this year. I wanted so much for him to be there opening night, which... Yeah isn't going to happen, but his wife is going to be my guest. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, and I'm working with just extraordinarily talented people 
And, you know, it was funny because I was, if I knew how long it took to mount a play, I would have started when I was younger. But again, it was one of these things that, wow, I have the opportunity to tell an amazing story and also supplement that with music that is, and this is a term that has been beaten to death, but it happens to be true here, iconic, like Stagger Lee and mm-hmm. personality. And it's an extraordinary story. And Lloyd trusted me with his life and telling his life story. So, how did you learn how to write a play? You know, I always wrote stories. I mentioned my grandfather when I was younger, and that sort of imprinted on me. In looking back, I see that it imprinted on me because even though he died when I was seven years old, mm-hmm. I remember him so vividly. And he grew up in New York and he would babysit for me all the time. And he would tell me stories about the Broom Street gang and growing up in New York. They were really cool. And, you know, and he worked at the racetrack. Uh, he was a gatekeeper at the racetrack. He was a, a, a working guy that always found some way to make a living. And you couldn't not like him. He was such an engaging character with such a great sense of humor, told such great stories. I loved the way that I felt when I heard a story. Mm. I loved the way that I felt when I saw a great film, like the first time I saw To Kill a Mockingbird and Mm. just cried, you know, and just loved it. When I see a great play, when I listen to a great piece of music, and how story plays into all of those things. And now I'm getting to do that in a much fuller version than I've ever done before. So going after that and taking that chance, and again, making just a major career change, I don't look at it as as taking a chance. I mean, it is, you know, in the the harsh light of day, it, it is. But to me, the cost of not doing what you want to do, the cost of not pursuing what you want to pursue, the cost of playing it safe, the cost of missed opportunities for fulfillment and excitement and creative expression and working with great people, doing what you want to do, the chance that's risky to me is not doing those things, Mm. not doing those things, Uh, because I think that's just so much more meaningful. What a gift we have in you to be teaching people this philosophy. I mean, teachers are so impactful on people and people who just um, espouse what you just said right there are, are going to be the great beneficiary of that. So that's that's beautiful. I love that. A couple more questions as we uh, wrap up. We'll do a rapid fire round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Probably that. I don't believe anyone has superpowers. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? Not going to sleep. That's good. I haven't had anybody in 450 of these. I haven't had anybody do that one. That's good. <laughs> do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Yeah, I collect stories. I like that. Do you know Cal Fussman? I just recently interviewed him. He was the editor at large for Esquire magazine. He answered the uh, the uh, question the same way. You guys would be... Uh. You, you guys would be besties. I, I know it. I feel it. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? What do people never ask me, but I, but I wish they did? Yeah. They never yeah. asked me this question. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that uh, if somebody asked me, Jeff, how much money do you need that I can give you that will free you up to pursue every idea and everything you'd like to do? And I'm ready to give you a check once you tell me what that amount is. I wish somebody would ask me that question with checkbook in hand. I love that. What a great answer. What book have you reread the most? <laughs> My own creative careers, making a living with your ideas between writing it and uh, editing it and then talking about it. I have read my book more than I've read any other book uh, by far, but that's because I had to. I love it. Okay. Two more questions. Um, what is your guilty pleasure? Not feeling guilty about pleasure. Oh, you're good at this. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Why do you do what you do? You said it earlier in a couple of different ways. My curiosity is insatiable. I can't stop. If I'm in a, a cab with a cab driver in Florence that doesn't speak, you know, much English, I'm going to just, you know, interrogate the guy. I'm fascinated. I want to know everything about him. Where is he from? What's his mother like? What kind of food does he? I can't stop. I have to. I have to. I have to put a governor on the amount of questions I have because I could sit here for four more hours and just keep going and asking more questions. I am incredibly curious about life. I used to be able to double my age. You know, when I was 40, I could say, ah, I'll be 80, you know, 50, I'll be a hundred. I'm, I'm at that point now where I can't, I can't double it anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. I can't double I it. I sure do. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. I want to squeeze every drop out of this fucking life that I could. I want to understand it. I want to learn more. I want to be better. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better businessman. I want to be more fulfilled. It's one of the reasons why I moved to Italy. And doing things like this allows me to lead a more fulfilling life because I get different perspectives. And in some ways, it actually gives me permission to the fact fact that you are chasing projects that you're passionate about when I am done with this interview, I, what I will come away from this interview with is go after what you're passionate about. If you love that, go after it. You know, so it's in some ways doing interviews like this are validating to help me and my audience say, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. I mean, he started off as a fuller brush man and he's, 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 then he was, he was with Ralph Lauren and now he's doing a play and he's teaching at the new school and he's writing a book and, and he's got more ideas that he wants to do. If he could do it, why can't I do it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think, to, you know, two, two things about that. I do believe in follow your passion, but you also can't be a fool. And right. what I mean by that is, the way that I made decisions was framed much differently before having a wife and two kids. Mm. You know, I have responsibility to others. I take those responsibilities very seriously. When I was the only one I was placing at risk. Who cares? But, you know, there are others to consider, you know, and, and you can't be the only one in love with your idea. You know, Mm. you and so if you hope to make a living with your ideas, then you need to be able to somehow, given whether there is a marketplace for those ideas, 
It's one thing if it's a hobby, but it's quite another thing is if that's how you hope to support yourself. And I'm not saying, you know, all these books that are out about it, and here's what Elon Musk does, and here's the seven highly effective habits and all that. You cannot replicate anybody else's life but your own. Your nope. background is different. Your upbringing is different. Your circumstances are different. The people you come in contact with are different. So you can't do that. And so prescriptive books on, you know, how you can make your life better to me are kind of bullshit. Best practices, absolutely. Be informed, be prepared, be aware, show up on time. All of those things are really important, but there's no formula for success mm. unless you can write a book about success that is so formulaic that everybody thinks it's true. And then you have a bestseller and you make millions of dollars and you write a sequel that says the same thing over again and you milk the shit out of it until <laughs> as long as you can. Right. But, you know, the other thing I, I wanted to, to mention was that. Nobody says to you, if you're going to be a dentist or an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, nobody says, well, Rob, what's your fallback position? Nobody says that. But if you want to be an actor, a dancer, a writer, you know, whatever, a uh, musician, well, what's your fallback position? Well, my fallback position is the same in any case, which is I'm going to fall back on my savvy. I'm going to fall back on my talent. I'm going to fall back on my own resourcefulness because I'm going to make that happen. Uh, and along the way to making that happen, this may happen instead. I'm not dissuaded. It says more about our culture than it does about the individual. I'm not going to be dissuaded because somebody tells me that something is difficult or something is hard. And I particularly don't like it when somebody tells me that, oh, writing, a, and this happened. Oh, you want to uh, write and produce a play. Well, and I was in the room of a producer who has produced many plays. And he said, you know, that's a very difficult thing to do. Very difficult. It's very hard. Most people don't make it. And he's going on. I went, time out, time out. So despite my youthful appearance, I don't need the theater is difficult one-on-one lecture. I appreciate you taking the time. I'd be happy to and love to talk to you about what I could learn from what you've done or your experiences. But don't try to scare me away from it. You know, mm. and I'm thinking and I have somewhat of a filter, not much, but I have somewhat of a filter. And it's like, well, you did it. So you're telling me I can't. The fuck? You know, I love that. So that is so good. When is the uh, opening night of the play going to be? Opening night is March 6th. We run through March 27th at People's Light Theater in uh, Malvern, Pennsylvania, outside just outside of uh, Philadelphia. Amazing. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? Well, of course, I hope people will, will want to read my book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Uh, they can look me up and follow on LinkedIn, and they can see quotes from the many extraordinary guests that I have in my class. And they can go to at a creativecareer.com on Instagram, and they can see the quotes from a lot of terrific people, again, from my class. And if they're interested in my film work and what I've done in that, they can go to madoffproductions.com. This has been Amazing. a total fun, enjoyable conversation with you, Rob. And I want to thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. It was so much fun. You, you are so welcome. I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. 
All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.